Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me today... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2017 Netflix series, Five Came Back. So, doing things a little bit differently this week. This is not a movie, per se, but this was a Netflix series which came out three years ago, Five Came Back, and it's based on the book of the same name by Mark Harris, which I've also read, and it's about five filmmakers during World War II directors, John Ford, John Huston, William Wyler... George Stevens and Frank Capra and unlike other Hollywood directors at that time they actually served military time during World War II. Frank Capra was more more sort of in Washington heading the departmental head but Ford and the others went overseas. Ford famously shot at Midway Houston was in the Aleutians and also in the Italian campaign and after the war uh, filmed a documentary about soldiers dealing with PTSD um, Weiler filmed um, bombing campaigns, famously shot for the Memphis Bell. George Stevens uh, also was on landings at D-Day, but also after the war uh, filmed at Dachau for uh, footage atrocities at the concentration camps, and that footage was used during the Nuremberg War Trials. So all these directors during this time in World War II ser- you know, were military, served in the military, yeah. every single one of them, which it's interesting because like i said there were a lot of filmmakers at the time like hitchcock you know did like something like lifeboat which is pro world war ii you know howard hawks did have and have not there were others casablanca but none of those guys they were making stuff to help the war effort but they stayed in hollywood these guys went overseas yes and it does you bringing hitchcock to mind brings to mind a question that arose uh, in my mind, as I was watching this, this it, what what really impresses you with this is the thoroughgoing nature of the the efforts that were made. Capper was kind of put in charge of all of it, and uh, his underlings were all of these other directors, and he had them going to various places in the world. Uh, Capper worked very closely with General George Marshall, who actually had uh, recruited him for this effort, and the first task he had given him was to uh, produce the why we fight series right so in america at least you see not merely a very tight connection between hollywood and the war effort and the, and the military in particular um but the, like you said these guys actually became officers in in the various branches the navy and the army in particular and it raised a question for me, and I don't know the answer to it. You know, there was a fairly substantial film industry, obviously, pre-war film industry in, in other parts of the world, uh, uh, Great Britain, for instance. And, and I, I don't know the answer to this question. Maybe you do. Maybe it was mentioned in the book. Um, was there any equivalent um, uh, level of, uh, as it were, recruitment or interaction on, on the British side? It's a good question. The one uh, probably most famous example of like British, you know, propaganda during World War II was um, was a film called In Which We Serve. It was co-directed by one was Noel Coward, who was a famous playwright, but also co-directed by David Lean, who went on to direct films such as Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai. And that's it was a story of British sailors on a ship during World War II. 
But as far as if there were any famous British filmmakers who did something to the equivalent of what these guys did, I'm not sure. Yeah, and I've never heard of it either. So I'm, I'm uh-huh. thinking the answer is no. And I'm actually kind of surprised because... There may be. I just yeah. haven't looked into it enough. To yeah, it. actually becoming part of... Uh, the, the British military organization. I wonder if they had died. I don't know the answer to that. Um, and then on the other side, uh, you know, uh, the Axis side, um, uh, the, uh, the, the same question arose. Yeah, well, in that um, case, you had Goebbels heading their head of propaganda. Yeah. And they probably started this whole idea of propaganda filmmaking yes. back in the mid-30s with Lenny Riefenstahl's famous Triumph of the Will. And yes. on a technical aspect, that film is extremely it's, impressive, well-edited. The yes. camera work is incredible for 1935. It, Although in the service of glorifying the one of the most evil men in yeah. history. That film, I mean, an, an honest aesthetic uh, evaluation of it is that it is breathtaking. It is breathtaking. And one of, the, one of the things that comes across in the documentary, I believe it's in the first episode, when they are uh, spelling out the story of how Capra got involved, um, he, he's, he's charged with this mission by General Marshall, and he starts to uh, look at the propaganda that had been generated by Germany, and in particular, Triumph of the Will. And he's taken aback. He, I don't think the, the the quote was quite. I was just fell back in my seat, but it was something like that. And he 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 looked at it and he said, "We're done. We're cooked. We're not going to be able to top this." So then he begin to thought, think about what exactly can we do to counter this? Uh, and, you know, the first natural response is try to come up with something as aesthetic and breathtaking as this, and, uh, but in the service of the ideals of liberal democracy and you know, the American Constitution. But then he realized that's going to be a tough haul. I think it's better if we actually use the footage generated by our enemies and be quite forthcoming and straightforward about what it is they are actually doing and uh, uh, what, what actions are behind the words that they use. So he painstakingly uh, collected uh, film archives from Germany and uh, Japan in particular, and and Italy, and found footage not not only of their as it were lofty propaganda, but some of the uh, uh, atrocities that they were committing. Because, as tends to happen with uh, regimes that do commit atrocities, they record the fact. So he's able to find German footage of the mistreatment of people in Poland, for instance. He was able to find Japanese footage of the mistreatment of people in China, for instance. And he said, that's the best tool we can use. Being relatively honest about what these people are actually doing, what their intentions are, uh, because we are asking, and this is another thing that comes out very well in the first and second episodes, um, we are asking our largely conscript uh, armed forces to go halfway across the world in one case and damn near halfway across the world in the other case and fight these people to prevent them from, as they wanted to, 
actually dominating the world. That's a hard sell to make for what was essentially an isolationist population Mm -hmm. here in the States in the 30s. Um, uh, FDR had to struggle with that as well. He knew he saw what was coming. Um, Churchill saw what was coming, but they also were quite well aware of the political uh, pressures to continue in isolation. Mm-hmm. And probably best uh, instantiated by somebody by, like Charles Lindbergh, who yeah. was a fairly popular uh, figure at the time, and definitely isolationist, along with holding some other repugnant views. Um, uh, but I think this is a, uh, a testament to Roosevelt's, but more particular, General Marshall's foresight in realizing we have got to generate uh, a set of films that are factual and educate these soldiers we're about to send over, many of whom will not return. And they did a bang-up job with that whole series, I think. And it's not even just with the military this was even before we got involved you could see hollywood trying to with their films warn people about what the nazis were doing like we mentioned hitchcock earlier one of his films in 1940 a year before pearl harbor was foreign correspondent that's about the situation in germany um famously charlie chaplin made the great dictator which is obviously parroting hitler but not making comedic of what he is actually trying to do and he, that was a huge box office flop, and he was criticized a lot for people saying, why are you trying to get us involved in this? Yes. So it, even and there was, they, I think they mentioned it a little bit in the documentary, but in the book they were talking about Hollywood was having to have this political committee on, like, you know, what exactly are you trying to say? Is this appropriate? And they were having these meetings, and famously they, they showed the book how they were going to have another one scheduled for December 10th, 1941, but... They canceled that, obviously, because, yes. you know, that everything changed after Pearl Harbor. And what's interesting, getting these, all five of these guys, they were big names all at the time. Mm-hmm. Ford had already started, you know, doing stuff like Stagecoach and stuff like How Green Was My Valley, which won Best Picture, and Grapes of Wrath. Stevens was a very popular um, comedic filmmaker. And then Capro would already won Best Picture twice. Houston wrote The Maltese Falcon, and his father was a very famous actor. Um, Weiler was making fa- hit films too so all these guys were big and it, it, you look at their ages like these weren't young guys right? but they weren't necessarily like elder guys in their 50s or like they, they were old enough to remember World War I but it's that in between age where they were kind of too young yeah. but they, they figured they don't want to miss out on another one like this, is, this wasn't a um, actor but George Hallis the founder of the Chicago Bears, he always regretted not serving in World War One. He was doing at, doing service for sports and everything. He never got to serve. Yes. When World War II happened, he said, I'm going to serve on a ship. And he actually left the Bears for a number of years to go serve. And he, he's around that same age as these guys. I think there was that feeling of, I don't want to miss out on this even though I'm too old. These guys were in their 30s or 40s when the war started. They But they still decided to go over there because they realized that, you know, if I sit this one out, I'm never going to be have to serve. And you know, there was always that feeling of what we see earlier with other with actors about that feeling of not having not served during when the war was going on. Yes, and uh, it's kind of interesting too in Hollywood. You know, you had you had people like uh, Bogey who actually served in World War One. Uh, that um, other actors, um, 
saw and realized or felt like they needed to they needed to do their fair share as well. I think probably the most telling example for me is uh, in terms of actors is Jimmy Stewart. Uh, he ended up being a brigadier general, uh, but he he flew a lot of combat missions over in, or bombing missions over in Europe. Um, very impressive. And uh, in the case of these five directors, I think the one that most exemplifies the the feeling of the need to serve is probably Capra. All of them felt that, but some of them felt like they were going to miss out on a great adventure. Yes, especially they showed that with John Huston. And you can yes. even... John Houston, of, of all of the director's egos, I would say Houston has the biggest egos. You see that in all of his interviews. He talks like this. Oh, yes. Very grand. Oh, yes. Yeah, and he, you know, he was bragging about how he got into a sword fight with Errol Flynn because they were both in love with Olivia de Havilland. And you could see how he was doing this because, you know, yeah. they even make comparisons of him to Hemingway, that he's this big, you know, yeah. masculine man. Yes. But even with all their egos, you can tell they've all... Been, uh, yeah. They were all very affected by what they had seen. Yes. So there wasn't like they were doing this when, you know, even when Houston's doing his interviews, you can tell he was still very affected yeah. by what he was doing. They, even with their egos, they were still. Yeah. Still and the other one, the other one's John Ford. Yes. I, I think uh -huh. Ford was the guy that really wanted the adventure. And I know I've told you this before. We're going to eventually have to do it. But uh, the, one of the things that pleased me the most about the, the recent remake of Midway, uh, mm -hmm. other than general, the historical accuracy of that thing was pretty good. Now, there was some, a lot of CGI nonsense in there. But the one thing that I just, just made me kind of go, yeah, was uh, uh, there's a scene in there when the, when, when the text kind of unfolding. Guess who's there? John Ford. John Ford filming things. And I went, yes, they put that in. That's great. Um, but you're right. Uh, all of these guys have a sense of service. Um, it's very interesting. I think in the documentary itself, there is almost this push on the part of the five Hollywood directors, the con contemporary Hollywood directors that are kind introducing of the topic, introducing yeah. the topic and talking about the individual directors. There's almost this intent with that group to say, and I'm putting it rather bluntly because it's a lot more subtle than this, but gee, look what we did. Look what Hollywood did during the war. Uh, uh, you should be praising us for this. I don't think those five directors would be comfortable with that because every one of them, and particularly Ford, um, when it came to the actual servicemen, that they were with when they would go out in theater and film, they realized, hey, you know, I've got a pretty cushy job compared to these guys. I can leave when I need to or when Frank calls me back or when General Marshall decides that we need to come back and all that. I'm, I'm fairly um, privileged. These guys don't have that. They're probably a, a good number of them will never make it back. So I think they would have been very uncomfortable with that kind of lionizing of them. Um, and that's to their credit, I think. Um, I think, I think the, 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 they were all affected. I think that comes across very strongly in this documentary. Um, 
And it's hard to say which one was more. I was, I, I'm going to say either Houston or Weiler. I would say the most affected would be George Stevens. George Stevens. Stevens because he was the one that had to go over to Dachau. That, I'm sorry. Of, I was thinking he was Weiler. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. Weiler was also very affected because not only was he Jewish, but he was, they showed that he was looking for this uh, town on the French-German border where he was from. And he yeah. found out that every single one of them was yes. killed in a concentration camp. Yeah. And but, there was even that risk, talk about risk-taking, since the fact that he was Jewish, he was filming uh, a bombing attack with the Memphis on the Memphis Bell. And if they got shot down and they were captured by Germans, he would be going to a concentration that's right. camp. They wouldn't right. take into the fact that he was a filmmaker. They would He would have been treated like any of the other Jews. Exactly right. And... You know, they talk about how we talked early. Stevens pre-war was known for more lighthearted stuff. He did yeah. one of the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musicals. Yes, he did some uh, comedies. Famously, one of them was Woman of the Year with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. That started their relationship. But um, Talk of the Town with Cary Grant, More the Merrier with Gene Arthur, all good movies. Yeah, but very lighthearted. After the war. They were. They he became extremely serious. He made Giant. He made yeah. Shane. Yeah. He made uh, connected the Holocaust with the diary, the film adaptation of the Diary of Anne Frank. Yeah. He. They talked about it in that series that he was became very more serious and yes. extremely affected. And you just can't. It's yeah. it's almost incomprehensible just seeing something that horrific and monstrous can just affect you. Yeah, and, uh, and we're talking about. The concentration camps. Um, very powerful part of the documentary uh, series is uh, talking about him, and he realized at the point that he um, entered these camps and started filming that he had to do it, and that it was actually kind of a a great affront to the dignity of the prisoners, many of whom were dying in front of him because they were so far gone. But he felt he had to do it. His mission changed to a mission of recording evidence. Um, and that can't be gainsaid because, um, as we know in the modern world, um, given the distance of decades, um, you have um, denialist movements that grow up despite the evidence and despite... Still going on to this day. Yes. So... He knew he was looking, I think, into the future and realizing um, he was serving a, a very important purpose there. And I, there's a part of the dialogue where he had, basically, they tell the story of he had taken all of this footage and he had just stored it away and not looked at it for decades. And I do not recall why, but he felt like he needed to go back in and look at it again. Do you remember the purpose? I don't I remember. Forget, but he decided to look it over. But yeah, he just and he could make a it through a handful of minutes, and then you couldn't get through. Couldn't it. Couldn't do it again, and it, it, it's it, it's a a very uh, poignant part of that film. It just speaks to the uh, insoluble problem of the inhumanity of man, uh, his, his capacity for evil. Uh, why is it there? Right. Yeah. And, and he, it, it, you're right, it affected him very much. And I, I think you can see in some of the thematics in those later films, um, he deals with things like, for instance, racism. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big component of Giant. One of my favorite movies, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, 
uh, not so subtle and not so hidden racism in Texas uh, toward people of Mex- or Mexican descent. Um, powerful, kind of interesting that the uh, climactic scene in that film is at Sarge's Diner, and it's pretty clear Sarge is an ex-serviceman. So I, I'm thinking uh, uh, <clears throat> something he had experienced uh, a while over, and perhaps in Europe or something, uh, inspired that particular scene. I don't know. but Yeah, and getting back to saying how they all these filmmakers didn't like, you know, like how you said in the contemporaries are very highlighting, like, look at what Hollywood did at this time. Mm-hmm. At the time, I think there was, though, some, even among Hollywood, uh, the kind of tensions, I think, between those who served, who went overseas and didn't. And we we both saw, I think, they were expendable. And that's John Ford movie, once again, with uh, John Wayne. And John Wayne famously did not serve. Yeah. And his co-star in the movie was Robert Montgomery, who did serve. And I'm watching the opening credits of that movie. Anybody who served, they have their official um, military title in yeah. there. And John Robert Montgomery has that. John Ford has that. The people behind the scenes, like the deep, the director of photography, others have the title, but John Wayne does not. And during filming, they talk about in the documentary, Ford broke down and yelled at Wayne when he wasn't getting a scene right, basically saying, come on, John, act at least like you've been in the military. Yeah, if I recall, it's he was criticizing the way he was saluting. Saluting, yes. Yes. And like apparently Wayne broke down crying, realizing what he said, and they made it up. But when we talked earlier about um, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and this was the late, early 60s, so this is sometime after World War II, there's still, even though they've all reports they've had a almost father-son-like relationship there was still some of that bitterness because in that movie he was constantly praising how great woody strode is an actor who did serve in the war and sort of needling john wayne again for his lack of service and that's always been i I don't want to make this all about john wayne but that's always sort of how anybody who criticizes who doesn't like john wayne or particularly for his political views always point out well he didn't serve there was all and but apparently reading that's that's always one of the things that affected him and sort of maybe explains why he was so... He was very, like, during the Vietnam War, he was very pro-involvement. He made the Green Berets, which was a propaganda for the Vietnam War. So maybe yes. that is explaining how I didn't serve. I've always felt bad about that. So I'm going to become very pro-U.S. involvement in the military later on. Yes. And um, he also, besides making films, he made a lot of uh, radio spots and recordings. Um, very patriotic. Uh, that's true, and it does raise the question of exactly why he didn't serve. I, I'm doing some further research. He applied. He was because he was too old. He was in his mid 30s by the time the war started, and he had a number of children, so yeah. that sort of exempted him. He did apply, and he was asking certain people for it, but it never got around. There was one supposedly he he was accepted into the OSS, but apparently the letter didn't get to him. It was to his estranged ex-wife, and she never bothered to tell him. Oh, so there okay. was other stories, but he tried apparently, but couldn't get it. Yeah, and that's as far as I heard, it was an age thing because um, mm-hmm. he he was relatively older than uh, most of the men that were being drafted at the time. Uh, but it's interesting that they wouldn't let, wouldn't, wouldn't even let him volunteer uh, as these directors did. One of the things I, we did I want to mention before um, we wrap up is that not only did they you know, were overseas serving, but even sort of as the war ended, they were doing a fan, the most 
probably famous is John Huston's documentary "Let There Be Light." Yes, and this was him filming in a army hospital or an mm-hmm. army hospital, and it's all soldiers who were deeply affected with PTSD. Yes, and it was showing all the sort of methods the um, psychiatrists are using to help them cope and. You, 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 they interview every single one of these guys just while the cameras are rolling, and, and they show that they say in the documentary that the guys weren't even bothered by the cameras; they didn't even notice. Yeah, and I don't know if they were asked or, or to whether they wanted filming or not. I would hope mm-hmm. they were. Um, the hospital is Mason General Hospital; it no longer exists. It was on Long Island, New York. Uh, it was part of a larger complex of um, uh, uh, mental hospitals, and. I'm struck uh, watching that thing um, by the amount of effort that was put in by the Army. Uh, This is an Army facility uh, to help these guys cope with uh, PTSD and, in some cases, moral injury that was brought on by uh, their service. I'm also quite struck by the, the... efficacious nature of some of the uh, treatment sessions. We see a guy that has a uh, a paralysis that has no organic cause. I mean, they've done x-rays and everything else. They can try and figure out if there's possible brain damage. There's nothing wrong with him physically. Um, the uh, psychotherapist puts him under uh, using hypnosis and has him go back to a traumatic event he had during combat and live through it again and then brings him back out of it very carefully and the man's able to walk again. It's absolutely incredible. They do it with another guy that stutters. A couple of them, I think, have a speech impediment. Yeah, and I, I was very impressed with that. And it, it made me kind of think forward uh, to the, to the uh, uh, similar kinds of issues that arose during the Vietnam War. There was a lot of PTSD involved there with guys in combat. Um, and uh, VA hospitals put, in, put in, in place a lot of the, the same methods that you see in Mason General Hospital. But decades later, mm-hmm. um, and this was still at a time when PTSD was still a relatively new thing, and even at some, maybe even controversial, because at that same time you famously had General Patton slap a soldier who had PTSD and was yeah. in a hospital. And you know, it wasn't necessarily new; it was recognized. The, the terminology would always change in reference Shell to shock. it. Yeah. Um, but even in the, they would call it psychoneurotic uh, mm-hmm. uh, disturbances at that point. Um, but even then. Um, Part of the reason that General Patton got in so much trouble, he didn't slap just one guy, he slapped two guys. Um, but part of the reason he got in so much trouble for doing that is because those around him, including Ike, knew damn well there was such a thing as PTSD. And, and this is, this is a completely inappropriate way to uh, treat soldiers that have it. So he was, I think, rightly disciplined for what he did. Um, but that just goes to show the uh, amount of recognition. And, and this is, I think, an object lesson for us today. We tend to 
sometimes, and I think every generation does this, we tend to look at past generations as kind kind of being benighted and not fully informed and narrow-minded and, and so forth. These guys were very much aware of this stuff, mm-hmm. and they did what they could to uh, alleviate it. Uh, not only after guys came back, but even in, as you see in the training films, before they go over um, the 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 Why We Fight series and some of the others, the Know Your Enemy series, they go out of their way to show you uh, some very shocking things that you will probably go you will probably see when you go overseas into combat. So they're trying to uh, prepare them ahead of time, as well as giving. Uh, um, treatment after they come come back and i think like i said that's a testament to that generation and it's uh it's foresight thank you for listening to this week's episode of philosophy at the movies you can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the stockdale center by visiting the radio stockdale page at usna.edu this program is hosted by radio stockdale there you can also listen to their podcasts such as ethics and the naval warrior and the do-over if you like this podcast, check out my other podcast, Real Sounds, for each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomac.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. <laughs>